Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to Admiral Michael Rogers on confronting the challenging cyber landscape. Please welcome our host, Dustin Carmack, Research Fellow in Technology Policy at the Heritage Foundation. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure to welcome everyone to today's event, Admiral Mike Rogers on confronting the challenging cyber landscape. Uh, I'm joined by Admiral Rogers. Uh, Mike retired from the U.S. Navy in 2018 after nearly 37 years of naval service, uh, culminating with a four-year term as commander of U.S. Cybercom and director of the National Security Agency. In those roles, he worked with uh, the leadership of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, and the U.S. intelligence community, as well as their international counterparts in the conduct of cyber and intelligence activity across the globe. He assisted in the development of national and international policy with respect to cyber, intelligence, and technology. The purpose of today's conversation is to arm you with as many facts as possible, so I'm excited to dive right into our conversation. In the last year alone, we've seen major cyber espionage incidents such as solar winds, which breached several U.S. cabinet agencies, ransomware attacks that have caused supply chain disruptions through our meat markets, through our East Coast pipeline of gasoline and oil, uh, and continuing threats from nation states uh, towards our election security and critical infrastructure systems. Uh, all the while, a steady drumbeat of action from the administration, as well as Congress, uh, trying to tackle and get ahead of the curve on cyber. So I'd like to hop right into the, our discussion. And for those joining online, uh, please submit questions into the queue, and we'll do our best to get to them towards the end of our program. Mike, first, I really want to thank you for being here. Oh, thanks very much for the opportunity. I'd like to start off at around a 30,000-foot picture uh, and give you an opportunity to discuss where you think we are uh, in the state of cybersecurity, where we're as a, as a country, uh, and the challenges that we face going forward. Um, one thing that I've discussed with one of my colleagues here and former uh, acting director of DIA, David Shedd, uh, in, in today's cyber adversary landscape, we need to see the problem, understand it, and then address it with a properly balanced deterrence, remediation, and offensive strike possibilities. How do we go about understanding our adversaries' plans in the cyberspace? So you always, and you know, as an intelligence professional for much of my adult life, you always try to start by understanding the, the dynamics of the environment and what is shaping the adversary, the choices they're making, the strategy they're employing, and the targets they're going after. So you always try to start, if we can understand that, and we can build a strategy that helps us counter it. So if you look at the actors in the environment out there, you got multiple things coming together. You have seen in the last year plus, nation states much more aggressive. Their risk calculus is really changing, really willing. Look at solar winds, look at the Microsoft Exchange and hack. You're looking at nation states willing to take actions that place at risk literally hundreds to thousands of organizations across a, a broad global swath. It's not just one sector in one particular nation, for example. And part of that is the nature of cyber. At the same time, you're seeing criminal groups who are increasing in their aggressiveness and in their sophistication in terms of ability, who view the nature of the dispersed world that we're living in at the moment, where the majority of us 
have stopped going to an office every day, but rather we work from home, we work mobily, we're working from remote locations. That offers greater opportunity for an attacker as the attack surface, if you will, that they can access just proliferates, multiplies. And so as I look at the dynamic from a threat perspective, I see greater number of actors, greater capability, and an increased risk appetite. That, that is not a good appetite for us. So we think that this is going to degrade slowly over time. Um, I, I think the answer is no. The reality, I think, is the dynamics in many ways are, for a variety of reasons, are shaped in favor of the aggressor, whether it be a nation state or a, a non-state actor like a, a criminal group. So having said that then, to, to one of your opening comments, you know, when, when I tried to deal with this in the government as part of a broader team, I was always struck by the idea, look, there is no one single group that has the answers to this problem. So if you think the private sector is going to address this by itself, I, I think that's got a low probability of success. Likewise, if you say, well, this is a government responsibility, let the government do all this, I, I would argue that's not going to work either. Also, I would argue there's no one single strategic focus that'll fix all this. Hey, let's just focus on resiliency. We don't have to worry about anything. Hey, let's just focus on deterrence. The, the reality is we're going to have to come up with a multi-layered strategy that integrates capabilities for both the private sector and the government, and not only from a U.S. perspective, but we're going to have to do this on a global basis. Look, one of the challenges of cyber is cyber doesn't recognize geography. I, I used to have this, not challenge, but I used to remind the leadership of the DOD all the time, look, we love, as military guys, we love drawing lines on a map to define how we're going to look at problems. That's why we have a Central Command. That's why we have a European Command. That's why we have an Indo-Pacific Command. By the same token, I, I always try to remind my bosses, cyber doesn't work that way. So, for example, in the fight against ISIS, the servers and the data concentrations we have to go after, guess what? Most of them aren't even physically located in the CENTCOM AOR. So we're going to have to come up with strategies that are not predicated on just aligning everything by geography. Absolutely. Well, that gets to the point. Uh, one thing I've noticed, you know, debates on Capitol Hill, uh, questions to cabinet agency heads, uh, what is the red line? What is a step across the boundary for a nation state actor or a criminal actor when it comes to how we view an act of war in cyberspace? So clearly there is no legal definition that we've all agreed to. Okay. There is no policy definition that we have articulated. It's not a criticism, it's an observation. There's no policy definition that we have all agreed to. It's one of those, I guess it's a little bit like pornography. You're going to recognize it when you see it. Um, the reality is, though, one of the implications of this lack of definition or specificity is that from state actors to criminal groups to non-state individuals, because we haven't been able to develop well-defined red lines about what is acceptable, what is not acceptable, what will trigger a response, what will not trigger a response, the reality is our adversaries just continue to push until they feel they've reached a point where the price they're going to pay is too high. And the reality is, to date, I don't think any of them have reached the conclusion, you know, I've kind of crossed a line here. It doesn't matter if it was the Russians attempting to interfere and divide our nation in the efforts in the 2016 presidential campaign and the work we've seen from them in the years since, that, that hasn't gone away. Um, whether it's, you've seen reporting in the last few days on Chinese attempts to influence, use cyber as a tool to manipulate information and to, to try to 
you know, if you will, tear our society apart. That's not unique, sadly, to any one particular nation. So the reality is, one of the questions I think we have to be asking ourselves is, how do we go about defining some measure of normality here so that both we and those who are attempting to use cyber as a tool to manipulate, harm, degrade, or deny capabilities to us have a sense of, hey, this is going too far. And the reality is we have not reached the definition yet. And until we do, you're going to continue to see an escalation, I believe, in aggressiveness, in impact. Um, boy, I, I used to think, and I apologize, I'm giving you a longer answer than you, you probably want, but I can remember in November of 2014, the North Koreans launched two Viper malware programs targeted on the Sony Corporation. And I can remember thinking to myself, this is it. We finally hit the red line. We, we now have seen cyber used to achieve physical destruction against infrastructure, in this case, Sony's network structure, as well as their phone structure, because they had tied their phone structure to their um, IT backbone. I thought, this is it. Now, now we've kind of hit the red line. And I can remember as we're talking about this in the sit room in the White House, um, we're getting into this, well, this is really a non-kinetic, a cyber event. And I said, can I offer an alternative viewpoint here? What if this same damage had been caused by two cruise missiles? Would we be having the same discussion? So is it the nature of the effect that's shaping our, our approach? Or is it the nature of the tool or capability that was used to achieve the effect? And I think to date, we've, we've spent a lot of time seemingly focusing on, well, should we have a different standard because the impact is originating from cyber than we would if it was something kinetic, for example. And I'm not sure in the long run that's really going to get us where we need to be. That's not going to change the dynamic that you started by asking me about. And we have got to change this dynamic. We're on the wrong side of it. Yeah, absolutely. On, the, uh, on that question, you know, one thing I've noticed here is, is the uptick of, of private sector actors being the first in the box on attribution. Uh, and it's been a challenge, I think, both from the IC standpoint, from a sources and methods standpoint of, of attribution in a timely manner, but how difficult is it really for us to attribute, especially when a lot of these actors are kind of simultaneously, you know, actors we know for in the Russian uh, space, or they have previous relationships with their military or intelligence units in North Korea, and China, and Russia, and Iran? So there's no single answer. Yeah. It, the reality is it's case by case. Generally, like most things in life, in my experience, we go through periods where from an intelligence perspective, we, we gain great knowledge and insight. We really understand the target, the adversary. The adversary becomes to understand we have a level of knowledge. Adversary changes tactics, techniques, and procedures. We start to degrade in our knowledge and insight, and then it goes back up again. So th that's true in a lot of other areas besides cyber. Um, in most scenarios, because uh, the first question from a policy perspective, you always get, uh, it's not a criticism, just an observation, who did it and what's our confidence factor? And if the answer from an intel perspective is either we don't know or we believe we have a sense but we have low confidence, it always shunted the policy discussion to ground. Okay, if we don't know who it is, we're not going to incur a risk here in taking a set of policy actions that may have second and third order effects against a much broader range of actors if we don't really understand what happened and why and who. Um, having said that, if you go back to the 2016 presidential election, most 
major events that I have seen unfold in cyber collectively, whether it was the government, whether that be government intelligence, government on the law enforcement side, private sector, because there's a lot of outstanding cybersecurity excellence in the private sector. Um, between those broad populations, we've generally been able to come to high confidence about just who, the how, the what. Um, and it's another good reminder, look, no one single group has the answers. Go back and look at solar winds. The target was predominantly, not totally, but predominantly government entities. And yet, who discovered this? It wasn't the government that identified this first. Um, you know, FireEye initially comes out and says, hey, look, we've seen some activity here. That leads us to believe, hey, we're looking at something that's much bigger Then we start to come together collectively. So attribution is an example to me of if we want to maximize our effectiveness, we've got to stop working in silos and we've got to ask ourselves, so how do we bring that private sector expertise along with that government expertise, whether it be in law enforcement, whether it be in the intelligence community, et cetera? Speaking of uh, solar winds, uh, yeah, I was in the intelligence community towards the tail end of that. I mean, it's less than a year ago now. Uh, and in terms of hafnium, I mean, what that did in terms of just kind of blown off the barn doors to uh, web shells across right. the globe in terms of just you know, changing the dynamic of ramping up in terms of escalation, do you think that the government itself has learned the lessons or been able to really peel through the onion of, of what happened there and is on a good pathway to trying to, you know, remit I mean, I think we have a, a good fundamental sense of what happened. The challenge is, look, you're dealing with massive bureaucracies. And within these bureaucracies, you've got silos with high levels of focus prioritization and resources committed to cybersecurity, and you have other areas, not only little resources, little prioritization, not much expertise. So I wish I could tell you the government was this one huge monolith and everybody had the same level of capability and, and focus, but that's just not the case. So that's always a challenge when you're a government leader and you're trying to implement change across this massive structure we call the U.S. government, just as the, it's true in the private sector. You know, cyber represents such significant scale that we've got to be realistic. I mean, the reality is, and I remember this discussion with leaders both within the DOD as well as you know, at the White House with, look, there is no check that you can write that's going to fix this. If we think this is only about throwing money at the problem, that isn't going to get us where we want to be. The hardest challenge in my experience in cyber is less technology and much more about culture. One of my takeaways, so you take it for what it's worth, was if you want to sustain excellence and fundamental change over time, then you've got to change culture. If you don't change culture, you tend to get episodic focus and prioritization. It leads to improvement. Then we move on to the next 1,000 things we got to focus on. And again, that is the nature of things. But and then slowly we, we lose that kind of capability that we had generated over time. It deteriorates. And suddenly we find ourselves three years later, five years later, boy, this happened to us again. And one of the dynamics of cyber is this is a sustained, a sustained problem that we are going to be dealing with for decades. And I wish I could tell you, don't worry, there's going to be a technology we're going to develop that's going to make this all go away. I don't see that. I just don't see that as being the most likely possible but I would give it a low probability of occurring. Well, speaking of that, and you, you mentioned culture, but also you know, coming from your NSA and Cybercom hat, in terms of the authorities that are available to the U.S., I mean, one thing that's been discussed, especially with SolarWinds and Hafnam, both were 
using domestic VPNs leased right. by you know outside actors outside you know U.S. Right. continental United States. So, um, and that's not by chance. Right. You're watching an adversary, in this case, the Russian security services. You're watching an adversary. If you look at the methodology they used in 2016, you look at the methodology they used in Solar Winds, a learning adaptive adversary. Hey, look, they're paying great attention to infrastructure outside the U.S. What if I use infrastructure in the U.S. to do much of this work? I mean, we, we have to acknowledge we're dealing with a, a set of adversaries here that have a lot of capability and that are learning and evolving. Well, speaking to that, one of the that soft kind of underbelly blind spot that we have on our domestic uh, domestic server systems, um, I saw that uh, former Secretary of Defense Gates, uh, who had been uh, the secretary at the time of right, standing up of, of CyberCom, right. um, he had penned an op-ed back in, and I think it was in April, kind of discussing a you know an approach that they had looked at in the Obama administration of trying to kind of dual hat a deputy from DHS to NSA with a separate block of authorities, right. you know, and from for, to be able to kind of tangentially go after these domestic side systems where you know even I think CISA and the FBI kind of acknowledged there's there's blind spots here. Uh, do you what, what are your thoughts generally on that? I mean, I know it, it opens up a whole bevy Jack. of con concerns um, on technology and everything else from from a constitutional standpoint as well. But if I step back for a minute, I think it's reflective of one of our biggest challenges. I always felt when I was part of the government team, and I was proud to be a part of that team, and I did it under two different administrations, very different in their focus, leadership very different, uh, different set of priorities. One of my takeaways, though, was. One of our fundamental challenges is we have not aligned our internal structures appropriately. It's less to me that we didn't have enough capacity, and it was much more to me, why isn't this capacity much more integrated? So the scenario that you're talking about was designed to, well, can we give DHS, this is pre, prior to CISA, but DHS now within DHS, CISA, can we give that government element access to capacity outside of its normal structure. Is there a way to do that? And you can argue, is the particular model that was proposed appropriate enough, appropriate or not? My view was, look, you might disagree with the specifics, but I fundamentally agree with this idea. We have got to come up with a way to align this capacity so that it is much more integrated. At the moment, that's not because we don't have hardworking people. It's not because they're not motivated. It's not because they don't care. But we have managed to create these cylinders of excellence. And then in many ways, not totally, we've got some pretty strong walls at times between them. And I just think it, it hurts our effectiveness. I'd like to kind of uh, change gears and kind of hop into specific nation state adversaries. It's kind of a lightning round. Uh, and and, look at, and look, looking at the, at the cyber landscape of, of who Who's who, uh, and and what challenges do they uh, bring to bear to, you know, our military structure, but also you know you know from our uh, economic espionage, everything else. So uh, I'll start off at the top with uh, with Russia. So the Russians view cyber as a tactical military tool to degrade or deny U.S. military capability. They view it as a strategic capacity, combined with disinformation a tool that at a strategic level, hey, we can attempt to um, exacerbate the differences that exist within the United States as a society. We pour, you know, pour gasoline on those. They didn't create those divisions. 
but they have spent a lot of time studying those divisions and trying to figure out, so how can we fire up people to focus against each other? How can we divide this nation? How can we weaken the institutions of the United States? Um, so you've seen the Russians do that. Russians also view cyber as a tool to place at risk in the event of a crisis or a confrontation. They spend a lot of time trying to understand our financial structure, our power structure, et cetera, so that in the event of a crisis or a significant confrontation, they could place it at risk, they could degrade it, deny it, destroy it. Um, so they, you see them kind of looking at cyber across the spectrum in many ways. If you switch to China, uh, I'm going to guess that was going to be the next one you were going to ask me. Well, in specific to that, you mentioned just a little bit earlier, but reporting yesterday from, from FireEye and, and Google's threat team was that they've noticed a, an explosion is the way they framed it in terms of, of Chinese behavior in the space of trying to actually cause physical action in the U.S. I mean, this is really kind of a game changer. It's something that people have been warning about for some amount of time. So it's interesting. You see the way Chinese focus with respect to cyber evolves. So initially, they really viewed this primarily as an extension of traditional espionage, and the Russians also do as well. I, I didn't mention that, but they do as well. But initially started with cyber as an extension of a traditional kind of espionage focus, largely driven by this desire to steal intellectual property that would enable them to gain strategic advantage vis-a-vis -vis a comp competition with the United States and the broader West. You then saw them start to think doctrinally about, hey, so how can we also employ cyber from a military perspective at a tactical and as well as operational kind of level? The, the evolution that I've watched with them is they've started to also view cyber a little bit like the Russians. Hey, how does cyber fit into a broader disinformation effort? A disinformation effort that potentially generates advantage for us. Um, you didn't see that five years ago, for example, but you're watching that play out now. Um, you're also watching, uh, the Russians' tradecraft always was very high. I mean, sometimes they, they didn't care if they were caught, but if they put their mind to it, they were, they were good. Um, the Chinese, again, watch the evolution of their tradecraft. If you go back 10 years ago, 15 years ago, really when we first started to see them in cyber significantly, not particularly good tradecraft and a strategic calculus that seemed to be, we don't care if they catch us. We're just going to deny it. Um, and so much, boy, I can remember uh, during the Obama administration, you know, much particularly in the first, in the beginning of the second uh, term, focused on getting the Chinese just to acknowledge that they, in fact, were using cyber as a tool for the theft of intellectual property and other things. Um, you watch how their trade craft has expanded. They are not only increasing, whether it's the Ministry of State Security, whether it's the People's Liberation Army, whether it's some of the private groups they're creating partnerships with, their tradecraft has really gone up. And it was interesting to watch when, when Xi Jinping and President Obama were going to do their summit, I want to say it was 2015 or 2016. On the U.S. side, we were very adamant with them. If you want a normal relationship with us, you have got to stop this kind of activity that we're seeing within cyber. And cyber is just one element of a broader set of issues we had with the Chinese then. You saw them some, take somewhat of a strategic pause for at least a short period of time. And then what you saw was they started doing it again, except their um, capability got much better and their risk tolerance changed. They clearly decided to themselves, it is not in our best interest to get caught. So let's spend a lot of time thinking about how we can do this with a lower probability of detection. 
what about the Iranians? Um, interesting in the sense that among the most aggressive in terms of actual offensive application, whether that's use of cyber against infrastructure within the greater Gulf area, whether it's in the Omar Emirates, elections last year, right, in the yeah. Saudis, whether it's in the influence kind of arena, we've already talked about with respect to the Russians and the Chinese. You've also seen the Iranians use cyber as a tool at times against the Israelis. Um, against in the United States, I remember you go back to 2012, 2013, the, the first instance that I can remember where we really saw a significant foreign use of cyber against targets in the United States, Iranian. In one case, the, the head of the Sands Corporation, who had been making some public comments in his capacity as a private citizen, saying he disagreed with Iranian policy vis-a-vis -vis Israel. Um, then in the 2012 to 2014 arena, you saw the Iranians attempting to take down the public websites of many major financial entities in New York. Um, so they have been very aggressive compared to some. The other thing I thought that was interesting about the Iranians they turned to, a, to, the, to their private sector initially to generate capacity. They literally went to companies in Iran and said, hey, we know you're doing cyber work in oil and natural gas, or you're doing cyber work with energy companies. We want you to partner with us to use that capability to achieve effect in those sectors outside mm -hmm. Iran. Um, in a way that you, you didn't see the Chinese use that model, we don't use that model, you didn't see the Russians use that model. Yeah. Uh, and I'll wrap on the countryside, but uh, Bruce Klinger uh, from Heritage actually just put out a really, really, really good uh, uh, unclassified, well-sourced uh, uh, report on North Korean cyber uh, cyber capabilities. I'd love to hear. They've been relatively quiet from from just in, in the news, but you know, like you mentioned, Sony earlier contained vast capabilities and also a little more trigger happy, you know, at times. Yeah, what made the North Korean so interesting to me was they displayed at times a willingness to use cyber almost like a criminal entity. What do I mean by that? So if you step back, North Korea, the most heavily sanctioned nation in the world, the most isolated in terms of if you look at their involvement in the global trade structure, the global financial structure, I mean, just very isolated, not fully integrated, um, in part because sanctions have precluded their ability to do that. And so, for example, we knew the North Koreans were having problems accessing financial resources. So what did they, then we started them going, you know, we could use cyber as a tool to rob banks. We could use cyber as a tool to mine cryptocurrency. We could use cyber as a tool to go after gambling sites and steal money. I mean, the kinds of behaviors that we had only seen really from criminal groups, suddenly we're watching the North Koreans and it's clear that they are viewing cyber as a capability that can augment some of the shortfalls or problems they're running into strategically. At the same time, they're very aggressive. You've seen the North Koreans, again, it's been a little quieter of late, or probably more, more accurate to say a little less visible. It doesn't mean it's not going on, but it's a little less visible. Very aggressive against infrastructure in South Korea. Very aggressive in penetrating, for example, academic institutions in the United States and elsewhere in the world to go after research they thought was particularly interesting. And, and then the Sony, you know, the first time. Yeah we'd seen offensive that actually resulted in the destruction, not just degrading or denying, but actual destruction of infrastructure in the U.S., arguably, certainly at a significant level, was November 2014 with the North Koreans. Absolutely. All because of a movie. Yeah. That's <laughs> um, 
Speaking of the, like, on the criminal side, uh, switching gears to, to the ransomware debate, um, you know, this is something that's gained a lot of attention. You know, it was gaining a lot of attention even prior to the big events of this year where we saw all on the Colonial Pipeline or JBS and the meatpacking industry. But this has been, a, I mean, really an uptick in the last two to three years. I mean, CISA and everybody had been really sounding the alarms. These guys were going after, you know, kind of mom and pop, you know, libraries, hospitals. And just this week, I think our evil just popped back up on the dark webs and, you know, they kind of went quiet for a while. And so I'd love your kind of thought of where we are in that space. I mean, there are people, you know, on the Hill, there's discussion of, well, punch them back. And, I, you know, I was listening to Chris Inglis, our, our national cyber director, this morning talking about it. He's like, well, we're not going to shoot our way out of this fight. I mean, it's very easy for these guys to kind of pop up their head and then go back under and reacclimate. What do you, where do you think we need to go from both that kind of integration and offensive, defensive posture on the ransomware side? So, again, my attitude is there's no one single tool. So you can't sit here and say, so all we got to do is hammer them and everything's going to be good. Yeah. Likewise, I don't think all we have to do is deter them. Everything will be fine. My view is let's look at a multi-layered integrated approach to this that has both an offensive component to it, a law enforcement component to it, and a legal piece to it a collaborative international diplomatic piece to this? Because remember, uh, one thing I used to always remind the team, look, there is a physical element to cyber. Somewhere in the world, there is a man or a woman sitting in a keyboard executing this activity. So let's not forget the physical piece of this. So they're residing in a nation state. They're residing in geography somewhere. And so I, I just think we need to think about this in a broad, very integrated way. I'm not a fan who's, who believes that there's only one approach to this. And I think, to both Chris as well as the previous point, I think particularly knowing and having great respect for Chris, you know, I think Chris tends to think in that, hey, we got to do a multifaceted campaign here. It just can't be the answer is just hammer them. Um, although I do believe hammering um, should be a component. Because for me personally, I'd really love to test a strategy with our Russian uh, leadership in the case of you know, Putin saying, hey, we have no relationship. They might be working out of our nation. We have no knowledge of that. We have no partnership or involvement. We provide no support. When we become aware of such activity, we take appropriate action to shut it down. I'd like to test that hypothesis because I'm concerned it's just a hypothesis and it's not really reality. Well, and we've seen a lot of these actors don't tend to go after the Russian government. Or Russian well, it's not by coincidence. If you look at a lot of the programs, look at a lot of the malware, um, written so it doesn't recognize the .ru domain. Boy, I wonder why that is. Yeah. Written so it doesn't recognize or activate if it encounters um, Cyrillic language. I wonder why that is. <laughs> uh, back on, on that question of, of technology, um, and you know work that you did at NSA and amazing work and, and you know the team up there. Um, where do we go on quantum? Because that was one question you know when I was in the IC. It's, it's kind of a, a constant question that a lot of people are trying to grapple with. What does the future of quantum look like in the U.S.? What does it look like for uh, our secure communications and like kind of a post quantum landscape? Are we on a good pathway to be prepared for that? So first, what is it that makes quantum different? Look, current computational capability in computers is inherently limited because there are two options, a one or a zero, and you can only look at one variable at a time. So when you're looking at really hard, complex problems that have a lot of variables, a lot of data, and the variables tend to change over time, when your model is predicated on you've got to replicate everything with one of only two conditions, so to speak, the one or the zero, 
it takes a lot of time and a lot of computational power to go after the most complex problems. It's one of the reasons why with current computational capability, commercial grade encryption is largely impervious. There are some other, there are some things you can do, but if you think you're gonna brute force uh, and defeat encryption with current state of computation capability, no. What makes quantum potentially so different is quantum offers the potential to look at not just one variable at a time, but look at multiple variables for a problem set simultaneously. If, if we can get to the point where the, the fundamental building block for current computation is a byte, the fundamental uh, building block for quantum is what we call a qubit, if you can string together hundreds of thousands, if not millions of qubits, and ensure their stability over time, now you've got a capability that can swallow massive amounts of data with massive number of variables that you can compute and account for simultaneously, and that you can deal with significant change. So think about problems that have those kinds of things. Think about cancer, think about weather, think about um, encryption, for example. Lots, lots of variables, lots of data. So with that kind of preference, and I apologize, no disrespect to anybody, but a lot of times I, I get the sense, I'm not sure people fully understand what the difference is with quantum and why does it potentially offer so much value. So as I look at quantum, I felt strongly and still do, look, quantum is a potential game changer that has both defensive implications as well as offensive implications. And we need to look at both how do we protect ourselves from potential adversary use of that amazing computational capability as well as how do we look at potentially applying it. And so I do think it's something we need to be significantly concerned about. For the most high-end, most complex problems with the biggest data sets, the reality is we are some number of years away from being able to work that. I mean, the, the current state of the art is some number of qubits stable over time and the low hundreds is kind of the current state. And if you want to get to the most complex problems, we need to string together hundreds of thousands of qubits, if not millions. So we've got a ways to go on this journey. But quantum computational capability combined with artificial intelligence and a few other really interesting technological developments are really going to change the way we look at problems that are built around data. Yeah. And, and speaking of those large data sets, I mean, one thing that Americans and people around the globe are doing is giving vast amounts of data all the time in an ever-growing manner the amount of TikTok videos and things like that that are going up into the cloud and different elements. So one thing that has been concerning is, is, is as we look at China, for example, you look at what happened with their hack of OPM, uh, the uh, credit bureau hack, and the recent Hafnium attacks, is they're building a massive amounts of data sets. When you're looking at these artificial intelligence machine learning picture, you know, we may not even really realize what those capabilities will be like in a post-quantum landscape. But what kind of what excites you about that? Because you know technology is also going to have a lot of great uses in this arena. What also keeps you up at night? So the exciting thing is the insights we're going to be able to gain against really hard problems: the human gene, cancer, weather. I mean, problems that just have massive data. That combined with what we're going to get out of artificial intelligence, the ability to learn from data, so to speak. Um, I think is really going to be an amazing thing. The flip side is it's also going to represent significant challenge. And look, that is the norm. Technology over man's history. The introduction of significant game-changing technology 
has always been a bit of a double-edged sword. I, I believe that we will deal with this. I am not one. There are some, for example, who argue, um, you know, AI is inherently destabilizing. We need to control the algorithms. We need to control data. We need to be mindful, but I'm not one who views AI, for example, as, well, this is inherently evil. Look, it's not technology that's evil. It's how men and women apply the technology where you start to get into ethical and moral questions, which are very important, don't get me wrong, particularly in a democracy. Great. Uh, question, then we'll turn it over to, uh, to the questions with Annie. Um, your previous job uh, as head of say, uh, one thing that's been going on the debate this Um, you know, and I, I can see positives and negatives on both sides of the coin. I, I know General Nakasone has weighed in, uh, uh, but I'd love to hear your feedback of where. So I'll step back from it. If you're a proponent of the current structure, you generally cite the following things as why you want to keep it the way it is. Speed of decision making. Um, Maximizing use of finite resources. Look, I, I wish I could tell you if cyber resources are unlimited, they're not. Um, alignment of two important organizations, NSA and Cyber Command, that are working in the same battle space. Um, so deconfliction becomes faster, deconfliction becomes easier. And not that there aren't other reasons, but I would argue those are probably the, the, the primary reasons. Um, if you're a proponent for a change, Generally, you have argued, number one, span of control. One person being one of 11 combatant commanders and running the largest intelligence organization in the US government. And NSA is almost twice the size of the next largest element in the US government. I mean, by US standards, even by global standards, look, if we're honest, it's the largest intelligence organization in the world. It's not headquartered in Tehran, Pyongyang, Beijing, or Moscow. Um, so having one person do both of that, Span of control. There is some argument that says, boy, that's tough. Um, another item you, you get is, well, if we separated the, the two jobs, you could focus your time. We, we could have a leader that's, fo that's focused on each of those important and maximizing the capabilities of each. And the other uh, general thing you'll hear is never underestimate the value of a little bit of competition. Um, three of us have had these two hats, uh, Keith Alexander, United States Army, myself, United States Navy, Paul Nakasone, uh, United States Army. Keith and Paul have publicly said their view is you should retain the dual hat. I have also publicly said, mm, I don't think in the long run this is the best. Now, there's also one thing to remember. We, when we, we often use the phrase, you know, separation. And I always reminded people, that's not really an accurate description of what we're talking about. What we're talking about is two organizations, separate authorities, Title 10 for Cyber Command, Title 50 for NSA, two different budgetary lines, two different budgetary authorities. So you can't spend the money of the one in the name of the other. No, remember, Cyber Command has no separate infrastructure. Literally, every building, every facility that Cyber Command uses is an NSA building, an NSA facility. So again, that's another reason why you would get some people arguing, well, you want to keep one person doing both. No matter what happens, the reality is we're not going to go out and spend literally billions of dollars to build new buildings and infrastructure for Cyber Command. 
So the reality is we're talking about whatever structure we come up in terms of the leadership, we're still gonna have two organizations that are both physically entwined with each other, that have missions that are in very different but yet complementary in some ways, and missions that have both these organizations working in the same mission space at times for different purposes, at times using different authorities, and as a result at times with very different risk calculuses. The things at times that I felt very comfortable doing is cyber command. If I put my NSA hat on times, I'd say, boy, there's some risk here. You know, we, sources and methods are very important. We don't want to compromise that. At the same time, putting on my cyber command hat, I'm, guys, we're here to generate outcomes. We're not here to look and listen and monitor. In, in some cases, we're here to actually achieve effect against an adversary, whether it's degrade, deny, destroy, using cyber as the tool to do it. Yeah. So it, it's an issue that will continue to come up over time. It certainly did during my time multiple times. And I had bosses that waited with express opinions as well. Annie, you want to turn us over to some questions from the audience? Yes, uh, thank you so much. And uh, we're having a couple of good questions rolling in. Uh, so I encourage you to uh, keep sending those in. Uh, so to start, Admiral, um, in your opinion, what cost burden should the private sector have in bolstering their cybersecurity for public services? So there is no doubt, look, as I started with, I don't think you can expect the government to write a blank check for the private sector and say, look, we're going to bear all this cost for you. Likewise, I don't think you can expect the private sector to say, hey, look, we don't need any impact. We don't need any, any help. The one thing I wish I, you know, governments tend to focus on regulation and legal frameworks because that's something that governments can do, the private sector can't do. One area I wish we were spending a little bit more time on is so how can the government incentivize private sector behavior? How can we reward, if you will, private sector entities that are making smart investments, that are appropriately focused, that are paying attention, that are doing the right things? Um, I wish we were spending, not that we're not spending some time, but I wish we were spending a little bit more time thinking about how do you incentivize behavior? Because again, if you want to instill long-term change, you generally get farther with the carrot than you do by just hammering people with the stick. Thank you. Um, another question is uh, that you've mentioned that geography plays a limited role in the cyber domain. Uh, how do you think that policymakers should react if malicious foreign actors stage cyber attacks using computers or servers based in American jurisdiction? So you, you're seeing that play out now. And so one of the challenges I think for us as a nation, because this isn't just government, as a society, what do we believe is the appropriate role for government in addressing domestic issues associated with terrorism, crime, et cetera? We built an intelligence community predominantly focused on issues outside the United States. It's not a criticism, it's an observation. So, for example, NSA is a foreign intelligence organization. So we don't do domestic collection. So when we see, act in my previous life, when we saw activity outside the United States, we try to turn to the domestic piece, whether it might be Department of Homeland Security, it might be the FBI, Hey, here's what we think we see, we believe we're seeing. We think there there is a potential domestic or conus nexus to this, but it's outside the legal framework for us. This isn't what we do. I, I think we got to step back and ask ourselves: 
is the construct that we created over the last decade optimized for that, uh, over the last century, is that optimized for the world of today and tomorrow? Because the reality is we've got adversaries taking advantage of that. It's not by chance, for example, that you saw, as I said, that you saw the Russians switch to the use of a lot of domestic infrastructure in the US. They understand our system. They know our legal frameworks. They know the limitations that we have imposed. And so they are trying to take advantage of it. Brett actually has a question. Uh, thank, thank you, Admiral. Uh, thank you, Admiral. This is a very fascinating conversation. Uh, I was wondering if you might touch on two um, issues that uh, I don't think came up in the, uh, in the comments so far. The first is I've had several conversations with political appointees who said that they were, uh, there were attempts to blackmail them or to compromise them uh, in several ways, and the, the thought was that those were state actors coming after them to try and influence uh, U.S. policy. And I was wondering if you might want to comment about uh, what you've seen in terms of trends in that area. Uh, the second is you mentioned that there are private actors in Russia that may or may not be working with cooperation with the government. Um, how does the U.S. government bring the private sector more in to, uh, in an aggressive or an uh, offensive way to try and combat uh, those types of efforts by foreign actors? How do we cooperate? Because you mentioned there's a lot of expertise in the private right. sector in this area. So how do we, how do we work with them uh, to bring them on board to, uh, to help so let me ask States. the second question, sure. answer Thank that you. first. Um, and it's just my viewpoint, so you take it for what it's worth. I believe the application of force, whether it's kinetically or non-kinetically, is inherently a function of government, not the private sector. So I'm not a proponent of um, the private sector taking offensive action into its own hands. Now, there's certainly a historic precedence for that. Governments throughout history, in our own history as a nation, when we first started in the revolution, we didn't have a Navy, so what did we do? We went to the private sector and said, look, we'll give you a letter of mark. It will indemnify you that, and provide you legal protection so that you can attack British ships. You can take British cargoes. You can bring them back to the United States. You can sell them. We will not imprison you. We will not take legal action against you in any way. And whatever money you earn, that's yours. Um, and we did that as, as, as a tool to incentivize the private sector to make up for a capacity and a capability that was lacking in the government at the time. So there certainly is a historic precedent. But in general, I am not a proponent of them doing that. Having said that, what I am a proponent of is the situational awareness, knowledge that the private sector has in terms of cyber activity, the knowledge that the private sector has in terms of the tools and the capabilities that are being used by actors, whether it be governments, whether it be criminals, that's a real plus. And I do want, in my opinion, I would like to see the private sector and the government partnering much more in an integrated way. One of the things that used to frustrate me, and boy, I used to say this to some of my government counterparts, you know, collaboration to me seems to be, I'll do my thing, you do your thing. And if I come across something that I think might be of interest to you, if I have the time, if I have the focus, if I have the inclination, I'll share it with you. And I'm going, so how's that approach been working for us? Take a look at solar winds. It, in no way do I mean this as a criticism of FireEye in any way, but they have talked about, we spent two weeks trying to understand this, you know, before we went to the government and said, hey, we're seeing something. And you know, part of me is going, why aren't we working together day to day on issues like this? Why is it we have to wait two weeks? Um, and please, I don't mean this. I have great respect for Kevin and the team at, at FireEye.
FireEye. That's not FireEye per se. It's this idea about collaboration, I just think, is not the strongest model, and it's not the model we need. I think the model we need is integrated. Why aren't we working side-by-side -side with each other 24-7? You know, I, 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 boy, I looked at the capacity that we brought online as I was departing the brand new facilities we were bringing online. I'm going, I would love to see private sector entities sitting here side-by-side -side when it comes to cybersecurity and cyber defense of critical infrastructure in the United States. I would love to see us sitting side-by-side. Why can't we do that? I would love to send men and women to partner with them in their security ops centers. Now, you can't do that on a massive scale. I understand that. But can't we come up with an integrated approach where we make smart investments that maximize return? Your first question was about, so is there a personal component to this disinformation or the use of cyber as a tool, if you will, to attempt to influence, in this case, by threatening, attempting to coerce individuals? There is no doubt that is an element of the world that we live in. I certainly saw it in my time, and I have to admit it was a little frustrating at times where leaders in the government would reach out, you know, hey, Mike, I'm seeing penetrations within my home's, um, you know, email system. I'm getting threatening emails. I'm getting emails that clearly are, are trying to categorize the work I'm doing in a very inaccurate and divisive way designed to generate distrust and unrest, what can you do about it? And I can remember going, I, I really can't do much because it's focused on you as a private entity, as a private citizen. I do think that's another area where there's some interesting capabilities and work being done in the private sector in that arena. If we can combine, again, the private sector and government, I think there's some things that we can do now. Maybe you can't do it for everybody, but I certainly think for certain levels of positions, we ought to make that just like we think about security for those individuals, this should be another component of security in some ways. You and I have discussed that integration piece right. uh, as it related to, you, you said, you know, we made a decision as a country to watch, you know, stop plane, uh, planes flying out, you know, dropping out of the sky and kind of how we treat like the NTSB and the FAA a little bit mm -hmm. and how we collaborate with the private sector when it comes to, to air flight. Yeah, one, because I, I do say, look, can we step back and ask ourselves, where are some models that we have shown they work very well, and there is some measure of scale there, because you can't pick solutions that, well, it's great, it works at the problem set is 1,000 people and maybe 200 installations, for example. That, that's not gonna scale for cyber. But I think civil aviation is an interesting example. As a nation, we came to the conclusion that the potential loss of commercial aircraft in which literally hundreds of people could die represented such a level of risk that we needed a different model. So we created infrastructure within the government, a legal regime as well, that said we are going to work aviation safety in a very integrated government and private sector way. And any time, so we're going to develop standards for manufacturing, we're developing standards for how we actually operate aircraft, we're going to develop standards about how we maintain those things, and then in the event of an accident, we are going to investigate it to determine exactly what happened. And that investigation is exhaustive. And no one can say, hey, I'm a member of a union. I'm not going to give you the medical records of our union members. And, hey, look, I'm a private company. We built that aircraft. The intellectual property that's in, that's in that aircraft, that's competitive advantage for us. We're not going to share the insights of the software we wrote, for example, or the uh, airline configuration. We use that competitive advantage for us. And the government... Government said that, guys, that isn't the way this is going to work. There's a greater good here that we all have to address. And so every time we have an aviation accident, 
We tear into the maintenance records. We tear into the operational profile. We take a look at the radar. We look at the training that the crew had. We take a look at the maintenance life. And then we not only identify the cause, but what do we do after that? We change maintenance. We change software. We change construction and fabrication. We change the way we operate. We change the rules for crew coordination. As a result, we have levels of aviation safety, despite aviation never being part of the pandemic, at a greater level in terms of number of people flying, number of aircraft, number of locations than ever. And yet safety continues to broadly improve over time. And the other thing I always struck me about aviation is, while we do have accidents, they tend not to be the same accident recurring over time. Look at cyber. It's the same techniques, the same penetrations time after time after time. Why? We don't investigate thoroughly. We don't promulgate exactly what happened. And we don't take, as a result of that, here's the following specific things that you must do. So I wonder if we could take that aviation model, start with a few important sectors. It might be energy production for us. It might be aviation in terms of cybersecurity. But pick us a, a sector or two to start with and say, look, can we come up with an integrated model that uses some of the techniques that we've seen work out well in other areas like aviation safety. I, I would argue automobile safety is another good example. Could we start and apply it and see if potentially we can generate a model that we can then scale into other areas? I, I just think there's some really great partnerships that have worked well and I would love to learn from them and apply them within the cybersecurity arena. Well, we're out of time today, but I know- Story of my life. On going, but uh, I just want to thank you again for your service to us. Well, thank me. I, I got to do for 37 years the thing I wanted to do literally since I was a little boy. I told my parents in sixth grade, I'm going to be a naval officer and I'm going to drive ships for a living just because I read stories of the sea. And I only say that because when people thank me, I, I, I should be thanking you. You let me do what I wanted to do as a little boy. I did it for 37 years. And as I, I, I tell you know, my own children, if I could wish one thing for you in life is to find a dream that you can actually do and that I hope that your experience like mine is that the reality was even better than the dream. And so I should be thanking the citizens of our nation for letting me work on missions I thought that mattered with organizations that were really focused on tough problem sets and that were manned by men and women who were incredibly motivated, incredibly capable, and who sacrificed every day. Man, I was jazzed every day going to work. Didn't matter how bad, how much crap was going on on the Hill or what I'm reading about me or other organizations on the front page of the Post or the New York Times. I was like, none of that matters. It's what those men and women are doing. It's the impact they're having. It's about serving the citizens of our nation and our friends and allies around the world. So I thank all of you for letting me do that. Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you. Thanks for everybody joining us. Thank you again. Uh, I feel like we can run through a wall on, on that. Hoorah!